Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dream Factory podcast. My name is Ryan Baldi. I'm the author of the Dream Factory Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. And this is the eighth and ultimately the final episode of the podcast. I did always intend for this to be a limited run podcast just to coincide with the book. And I have the perfect guest today to bring this series to a close. Um, I'll introduce him to you in just a moment. But first, I want to touch on the news that the Dream Factory has been long listed for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. It's a tremendous honor to be named alongside so many great authors whose work I've admired for a long time. Um, the likes of Michael Calvin, Simon Cooper and Ed Caesar. Um, and to be one of just three football books nominated for the award is a really incredible honour and I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who's bought and enjoyed the book so far. My guest this week is Alf Galustian. He is a vastly experienced coach of more than 40 years and the co-founder of the innovative and influential Curva programme. Um, Alf has worked all over the globe in his career alongside some of the most uh, high-profile names in the game, not least Arsene Wenger with Arsenal, and he's worked with Juventus and many others. Uh, he touches on all of that in the podcast, and he uh, discusses the importance of 1v1 training and equipping young footballers with skill sets to be able to solve problems on the field themselves. It's a really fascinating chat with one of the most experienced and, as I say, influential youth coaches in the game. So without further ado, here's Alf Colustian. Good morning, Alf. Thank you for taking the time to join me on the Dream Factory podcast. How are you doing this morning? Ryan, it's my pleasure. Um, I read your book, uh, Dream Factory. It's excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, before we, we get into your, uh, your, your history with, with Curva and um, everything you've done in the, in the last couple of decades in football and all the, all the widespread influence you've, you've, you've had in the game, um, could we begin by talking about your own background in football and your route into coaching? Um, yeah, Ryan. Um, well, it's interesting because I, I did a, a podcast last week with Arsene Wenger and the, the interviewer asked both of us that. And we both independently came up with the same answer was that it was a love of playing. Mm. And one day, for whatever reason, you stop playing. And it's a natural extension if you love the game because, you know, that, that's what it is. And so it was that as a seven-year-old, that feeling. And, um, you know, of course, um, so playing... The love of playing then leads to coaching. So that was kind of my route into coaching. Um, I suppose my background was um, uh, I did pretty well as a schoolboy player. I got recruited by a school called Millfield. It's a sports school. And um, I think it was one of the first specialist sports schools, Ryan. And it, it went around the country recruiting so-called um, sports people, that uh, different sports, all sports. Anyway, at 13, I was recruited by this school and went and, um, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting because um, I was playing with, I was 13 or 14, I was playing with 17-year-olds. So um, to all the coaches listening, that is one way to advance, but there are dangers. And um, so w what happened basically was um, uh, at 16, my mother died and uh, my father was living in Wimbledon. Uh, I wanted, you know, he wanted me home. So I came home, joined Wimbledon. Um, uh, as a young player and um, but things didn't work out as a player really I mean I think by the time I was 18 I had the five operations in my left knee and I was done really um, and so I, I just felt uh, uh, right that I wanted to um, sort of stay in football but but there weren't I didn't you know I was too young for so-called coaching so um, I sort of chose um, 
uh, you know, tried other things. And then a friend of mine um, who was visiting from, I think, the Middle East, anyway, he came over here, he said, look, I'm going on a prelim badge. In those days, it was called a prelim, the first entry into coaching. And um, uh, he said, look, uh, um, I'm going to Littleshaw, this place, do my prelim badge, why don't you come? So I applied very late, I went, and I liked it. I, I sort of, in my mid-20s, fell back in love with football. And I thought, oh, wow, so I can't play, but, but here's another way. So that was my route into coaching. That's great. Um, and of course, you're, you're well known for your, your Curva program. Before we dig into that too deeply, can you begin by explaining to me how you came to link up with the former Chelsea player, Charlie Cook, who, of course, was your, was your partner through, through the program, and how you took inspiration from Ville Curva, the coach? Yes. So, uh, Ryan, Charlie was one of the great, I mean, I hate to throw about, my favourite player is Messi, but Charlie was almost like Messi-like, to me anyway. Anyway, we both went to the US to, to, to sort of pursue football careers and, and uh, we both married Americans. And Charlie and I met in the US, he was working at, at Nike as the football sales uh, uh, marketing guy. And, uh, you know, I was trying to get started and we became friends. And um, in 1984, well, CS, 1984, we, start, we, we thought about starting a football school together and uh, in the US. And um, so we went to, in, in America, they have these incredible conventions where it's like, you know, other conventions or trade shows. And you get all the companies and you get all football people. Anyway, it, it, 1984, Philadelphia. So Charlie and I went to see, you know, to learn about the soccer business. And um, we were passing a room and we saw this oldish guy um, working with seven or eight players, each with a ball. There was only about 10 people in this ballroom sort of place. And me and Charlie went in there and saw, of course, it was Will Kerber. And um, so we just watched for 10 minutes and he said two things. It was about an, an hour presentation. And he was very, Will was, would talk in all sorts of ways that people wouldn't understand. But, but he said two things that had an incredible uh, effect, well, uh, a meaningful effect on Charlie and myself. And one, he said that in the um, formative years, which he meant under 12, um, it's about individual development as much as team development. So you look to focus on the individual. And we never heard that because football's a team game. And then every kid had a ball. And we'd never seen that in our careers either. But in the old days, you had a ball sometimes. And um, so um, anyway, it finished. And uh, um, Charlie and I said, well, this is different. This is a new way of looking at football. So when we start our football school, um, our first football school, it's great to brand it with, with a name and a philosophy that's different from other people. So very coincidentally, six months later, um, Bobby Robson, who's a great English coach, Bobby brought uh, Will Curver to Lillyshaw. And I, come, uh, I was doing my full, that was a top qualification then. So I decided, total coincidentally, uh, coincidence, uh, to go to Lillyshaw. And there was Will. It was a three-week course for the, the full badge, they used to call it. And um, so I, Will Curver, and I sat next to him. And in those days... The only way I could communicate Charlie was by telephone. So, you know, um, I, I said, look, you can't believe it. I'm, his will's here for three weeks. Let's, let me see if I can do a deal. And um, anyway, long story short, um, I, I did a deal, bought the rights for Will's name. And that's why it's Curva. 
And um, Charlie and I then, in 1984, we began Curva Coaching. What's Curva Coaching? What, what, what people, some people, and that's almost 40 years ago, Ryan, but um, what some people maybe misunderstand that Will wasn't really part of Curva Coaching. It's weird. Um, we, we, his philosophy, me and Charlie thought, well, this is, this is unique. We, we can develop this. And as I say, we started one school, school in New York. And, um, um, but Will actually went to, to Dubai, UAE, um, other places. And so he was never really part of Curva Coaching. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, for those who are unaware of Will Curva as a coach, I guess he's most, most well known for his, his time of Feyenoord in the 70s where he won the UEFA Cup and the, and the Eredivisie. Um, did, did you find that kind of having his name attached was was uh, useful to, to you to get the word out there and get some sort of recognition or was it just almost an homage to an homage to uh, to, to will um no it, it did help uh, because yeah, imagine in the 80s everybody in america if you were english you were a soccer player you know football player so there was camps all over the place and we and charlie and i wanted to have you know, we, we, we didn't want to push personalities. We want to be known as educators, if that makes sense. So um, to have a method rather than a name, you know, the, the, if you say the Barcelona way or the Manchester United way, they're, they're not a way, they're a club. And we want to be known as educators. So um, I think having that and, and then having a story, and this is way back in 84, it even helps more now because we've got the history. We've got four, almost 40 years uh, doing this. Um, but it absolutely helped. And um, the, 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 the sort of early part of your question in, well, how, so you talk about Curva in, in, um, in 84, now it's 2021. And so a, a, a major question is, well, how's it changed? So, um, so there's three parts here, really. There's the Curva curriculum. So a curriculum is drills and games, basically and the what you do, right? And um, in these uh, almost 40 years, Charlie and I have developed a curriculum, a huge library of rules and games. So that's a curriculum. So w when we started, there was very few, and now there's, uh, you know, uh, I, can't, I can't give you the exact number, but, um, and then we, we built structures, um, something called the Curve Coaching Pyramid of Player Development, which is a structure where the, it's like a filing cabinet. Well, these rules and, and games are filed, so, for example, your ball mastery, uh, receiving and passing, 1v1, uh, speed with the ball, speed without the ball, finishing, small group play. So it's, it's kind of like a pyramid structure. And so in, in 84, we hardly had anything in it. And in 96, we created this pyramid and we kept stocking it, if, if you know, like a filing cabinet of drills and games. So that was the curriculum. The Curva method, um, when we started with Will, if you imagine, so method is how you teach. Um, and, and so um, with, when we first started with Will, and, and this is no, you know, he was a great, you know, a genius, I think, and a great man. But basically, he, he operated his, uh, his drills and games into two parts. One was called um, repetition, just repeating things. Another was called limited pressure, where the defender never tackled. Now, um, that was 84, but Charlie and I, um, especially having played and, and being in the game, uh, uh, thought, well, wait a second, you've got to get a full pressure. Sometimes the defender's got to tackle. And so in, in, in a very short summary of how it's changed to, to uh, now is that um, 
the curve of meta has evolved to um, what this great uh, Swedish uh, uh, psychologist called uh, planned deliberate practice, increasing difficulty, which must be opponent pressure. And what we did was um, takes will focus, take, took Will's focus on the individual development of young players to their effective use of the skill in a team game because it's a team game. So connecting that isolated practice to a team game. So that's another way the method changed. I suppose the business, um, when I think about it, um, we started with one school in New York uh, and now we're in 42 different countries. For example, our program in Japan, we have 156 schools in Japan. In 25 years, and I spent almost 25 years on and off in Japan, we've developed 400 full-time coaches. Um, over 20 players who've gone through the Curve program have appeared in the Japanese national team, men and women. And, and almost 100 kids uh, have gone into the J-League, the Pro League. So um, you've got the curriculum, how that's developed, and the method, how that's developed, and the business, how that's developed. Yeah, the, the, it's been a real uh, interesting, uh, you know, just, just looking back through your story and, and of the curve of journey of how it, it grew and spread. Um, and your influence uh, as well infiltrated um, uh, elite, elite clubs, essentially, in, in their own youth policies. You've worked with a lot of professional teams. Um, could you just talk me through some of the, the, the clubs you've worked with and, and how perhaps, if at all, you have to adapt your, your methods and your program when going into those environments? Yeah, um, so over 40 years, Ryan, I, uh, this is, I might be off a little bit, but I don't think a lot. 17 national federations, uh, including the French, um, the Brazilian, um, the Japanese, Australian, uh, the English. Um, so uh, as a coach's instructor, content advisor, really. Um, and I think over 50 pro clubs, which from Arsenal to Newcastle to Juventus to AC Milan, um, to buy Munich, um, again, as a coach's instructor. Um, so, um, you know, what, what was, uh, and, and this was a question uh, to Arsene and myself about how we've learned, because he's, Arsene's worked in many places too. So it, what is the impact of these cultures on, on us as teachers, for example? And I think it, 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 one thing when I started going to all these countries was that to appreciate the huge cultural cultural influences on how you teach, what you teach. And if, if I can give you some examples. So for example, in Italy, when I started working in Italy, um, the, the, the vibe I got immediately was that defending was an art for them. You know, I'm an attacking coach. I believe in attacking philosophies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but having said that, um, of course, defending is crucial to the team game. But the Italians had almost taken that to an art. And every coach, uh, when you'd speak with them, um, th that was their foundation. Whereas mine was ball mastery and 1v1 attacking. There was, theirs was, well, how do you defend? And we'd start that at eight, nine, 10 years old. So, um, uh, so but when I worked in Spain, it was to do with possession and um, more to do with, you know, so in possession, you. Uh, you've got two types of possession. The way the Italians play, because they play possession too, is to stop the other team shooting. So in Spain, it was to create goal chances, much more looking for the forward ball quicker. So the ratio between combinations and the killer pass, the forward pass, was much uh, less in Spain than it was in Italy. And so what, what I learned in Spain was um, 
that uh, the, the fans, the players, the parents, the coaches appreciated possession skills, receiving, passing, especially in 1v1. So again, it was a cultural uh, sort of thing. But I have to say, um, because um, uh, Spain was heavily influenced by Reince Michaels and, and Johan Cruyff, and of course, we'll work with both of them. And um, Cruyff especially was somebody that I thought was like, um, you know, for me, the ideal visionary. And so Cruyff had a huge effect on, I think, Spanish football. And then when I went to Brazil, um, I was invited by Carlos Alberto Pereira, and Carlos uh, was the technical director of Brazil. And um, he was trying to get, a, trying to encourage more ex-professionals to get their license. And in, in that time in Brazil, it was difficult because they had to go to university degrees. And some of these guys, you can imagine, weren't academics. So. Um, I went on a, a tour of Brazil, um, mainly with ex-professionals, like Zico, Roberto Rivellina, which were my heroes, so it was a pleasure for me to do that, but trying to encourage other pros to come in and learn coaching. And he said something which, which influenced me greatly in how I teach and what I think about teaching, was that he said, in Brazil, we have a conveyor belt of talent. And, and I always remember that. And but he said, talent isn't enough. And it kind of like stopped me in my tracks. I thought, he's absolutely right. They produce thousands of talented players. There's, if you go to a pro club, you're talented. It's not enough. It, it, there's something else. And it got me thinking about what, what is that else? You know, so it, it hugely influenced me. In Germany, um, mainly when uh, Jürgen um, um, Klinsmann was uh, coach of uh, Bayern Munich, so I went there as coach's educator. And but in Germany, I learned this incredible discipline, you know, timekeeping, um, the hard work element. And when Carl's was saying there's something else, that I saw that little ingredient in Germany, that's something else, you know, um, in discipline, hard work, ethic, etc. And finally, Japan, so I've just picked five, six hundreds. Japan was, uh, had, has had probably the most influence on me because their attention to detail. So I said, um, uh, for example, if you look at the Curva um, 1v1 program, we have 77 1v1s. In Europe, people will learn three or four of them. That's enough. In Japan, they want to know all 77, exactly how they're done, in what uh, order they're done, what's the name of it? And so Japan uh, sort of influenced me 20, uh, 25 years ago that detail was important and that it, you needed to be an expert in, not only in every field, but in a certain field. So if you're going to teach 1v1, you need to be an expert on 1v1. You need to learn those 77, what they do, how they create goal chances, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the countries that, that actually most influenced me. That's fascinating. And you touched on on what was going to be my next question there. Um, it was a lot of what the, the Curva program seems to do from, from my perspective is equip players um, with, a, with a tool set that not only aids skill development, but kind of emboldens them in 1v1 situations and gives them this, this toolkit they can feel comfortable in, in different ways of, of attacking. Is this something do you feel that's been lost somewhat in modern coaching, this, this emphasis on 1v1? And, and why is it something you feel should be preserved? Yeah, so um, 
Again, uh, this came up in the podcast with Arsene and uh, about the question of how valuable is 1v1. And because you're talking about a team game, it's a topic. Um, so my view is, well, let's talk about what the purpose of 1v1 is. Because I hear on TV commentators, there's this trick and this, this, you know. And I'm saying, wait a second. If you want to be whatever level you play on, you need the, the uh, tools to be effective for your team. So the purpose of 1v1, I'd like to say, it should be defined. And the purpose of 1v1 is to create space to pass, shoot, or run. Dribbling is when there's nobody in front of you. So you run with the ball. But when there's somebody in front of you, so notice you don't have to go past them. You have to create space to pass, shoot, or run with the ball. So in other words, it becomes absolutely important where the boys and girls, as they grow older, there's less space, there's less time because players are quicker. And therefore... It's it's uh, essential. You you need whatever apart from the goalkeeper, it's an essential skill to be taught. But um, it's been sidelined a lot um, around the world because it's people say, well, you're going to coach selfish players, or it's it's individual. You know, the team. You've got to coach the team. And and my point of view is, wait wait a second. Um, it helps the team. And uh, if I can give you an example, especially in the last thirty meters. So last 30 meters, nearly all goals are made and, and scored. That, that's, that's it, you know, whatever level, but especially at a pro level. So imagine if you could equip your players with the ability when they're outnumbered, which they will be in the last third, your attacks will be outnumbered. And then you have the, the one bus, single bus, the double bus, you know, two groups of defenders. One v one is a way to drive right through that, right? But so... In the old days, uh, when I started, I used to think, you know, people like George Best, George had a, even Charlie, you know, they had a somehow a supernatural sort of gift from somewhere. And the more I worked on this 1v1 topic I, I, and, and listened to people like Anders Ericsson, I thought, no, this is, can be taught. It's not, you're not blessed with it. You can, you can actually teach it. And so a lot of people didn't teach it because they believed that it was God blessed or, or some other um, way. Um, but but um, so I've learned 35 years plus ago that, no, you can teach this, but you need to have an, a curriculum, uh, which we have 77 1v1s. You know, it's, for example, there's uh, 22 stops and starts. A stop and start is when an opponent is either side of you. And we have 36 feints. A feint is when an opponent is in front of you or behind you. And we have 19 changes of direction where you shield the ball. Just shielding movements are important now when you want to keep possession. So, in other words, um, there, there is a curriculum to support this very valuable topic. Um, and so, um, if I can give you an example again in the last 30 meters, from these 77, there's eight, only eight, that are very effective. They're called mirror moves, and um, they're four pairs. So it, uh, it, let's say you've got two going towards a goal, two when your back's to goal, two when you're going across the goal. And so imagine if you can teach that to your players who are playing the last 30 meters. You might create 10 more goal, goal chances. That you, I'm, not, I'm not saying you'll score, but you may uh, create. And that's good for your team. It's, so this business about 1v1 being only for the individual. I don't buy it because I think in, in these days, especially at a high level with space and time being restricted, you need a skill. I, I think the, the other thing is why I like it, Ryan, is it's risky. Now, this might sound 
with but with kid, with young players under 14 especially risk is okay you know smart risk okay yeah you you wouldn't so last 30 meters you can risk things you know not if you're a defender i'm not encouraging defenders to hold the ball and try to beat players but but i'm saying if you if you go on the offensive and you're in the last 30 meters what's wrong with risk it's smart risk right so and that's i think is important in teaching that many many young players are, are really fine to risk and therefore they don't learn because risk is one way of learning and so they're put off by the coaches they're put off by their parents they're put off by the result of the game you know we lost for nothing so you know and and but under 14 who cares you know if you lose for nothing no yeah, no, that, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. And it's something I think that um, through my own work uh, on the book, I found that it was uh, increasingly um, the philosophy within a lot of academies now that um, that this sort of de-emphasizing of results for the for the greater good of, of individual development. Um, you're someone, and again, the, the book um, and consequently this podcast focuses mainly on, on English youth football. And you're someone who has vast experience in football across the globe. So I was wondering, what is your impression of how uh, coaching within uh, English academies and English youth football has evolved over the years? Um, and uh, do you have any impressions of its current state of play? Well, um, if I can sort of rely on my personal experience on this, Ryan. Um, so in 2010, um, Trevor Brooking, who was um, the, the technical director of the English FA, uh, Trevor and I were friends anyway, but... but um, Trevor uh, introduced me to some of the courses that FA were doing, uh, really uh, the late Dick Bate and, and a guy called Brian Eastick, and, and they were responsible for coaches' education, especially the pro club coaches. And um, in 2010, Trevor introduced me to a guy called Jed Roddy. And Jed was the uh, director of football um, development for the Premier League. And... Um, so I spoke with Jed. Anyway, long story short, um, uh, that year, Jed and the Premier League launched a program called the EPPP, Elite Player, um, uh, Elite Player Performance Plan. Um, and um, Jed asked me to be a technical advisor on it, especially in content for 8 to 12s and, and then some for 12 to 16s, and coaches' education on that content. So for a year, I spent time traveling around to all the Premier League clubs or, or we brought all the clubs in, in international breaks together. So firsthand, um, because I knew what the old professional academies were, were was happening then, but um, I've got to say that the, the triple E, uh, the E triple P program brought in large amounts of money, required the uh, academies to invest or, or, or the clubs to invest in their academies. Therefore, you've got more, uh, more better facilities, more professional uh, coaches, better coaching. Um, so there was an um, immediate upgrade. And during that time, Trevor also brought in Gareth Southgate and, and Gareth came on some of the things I did too. And so it fast forward to, you see what the England team under Gareth Southgate is. I mean, I think he's the best English coach we've had. Um, probably since Terry Venables and, and so, or Bobby Robson. And, and so um, this idea that you had to invest in youth development and that had to be, you know, all the facilities were upgraded. Um, 
you know, e even that, you know, playing on great pitches and, and, and uh, you know, having uh, expert advice, sports scientists, um, you know, having everything videoed, analysis, et cetera, just the, the psychological input, the health benefits uh, that players, uh, the, the, the advice that players could get. So I think that the, this EPPP actually upgraded everything in, in the English football elite level. Uh, and a lot of credit to uh, uh, Trevor and, and Jed uh, for this. So, um, and you can see the players they've produced. I mean, look at the young players being produced now. And I, uh, I've got to say too, one of the interesting things when I went around the country, I think I went to 18 of the 22 clubs or uh, the, uh, they attended these courses and nearly every one of the clubs had a curve of video or a curve of tape or a, talk to me about Kerber. So um, in, in a small way, I'm, I'm glad that we actually contributed to this idea of upgrading individual, individual skills. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, just kind of looking into our crystal ball and into the future of, of what uh, is, is, in, is in place for youth development and youth coaching. Are there any developments you'd like to see and any in an ideal world, anything that you'd like to see happen? Well, I think in grassroots, more, more money, more investment um, for facilities, especially Astro. Um, you know, I, I remember in Japan when we started in two, 1993, the, the, J Japan is 80% volcanic, so um, the, there's no grass fields. And so they built a lot of Astro, especially uh, for futsal, futsal size, 40 by 20 meters. And, you know, the beauty of Astro is it's, you know, uh, you can play all day long for 365 days and, you know, beautiful, always and maintains in 15 years, probably before any real maintenance has to be done. So it, um, one more investment into grassroots. I think from what I've seen, and I'm not an expert, um, but, but from the Kerber program, the coaches probably would need more bespoke, um, uh, not education, you know, on how to work with the players and the parents too. That's another. Um, and um, so um, I think another thing in grassroots, which is really difficult, and I, I know from my own grandson's experience, is referees. They can't get referees. And there, I saw a very good, uh, I think it was in the Times today, a very good article about this problem. And so, you know, we need to maybe... Even the pro game, I think, need to sort of recruit maybe ex-players. I think ex-players, you know, if you if you sort of uh, got them to get involved in refereeing and 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 it's a way of keeping in the game. I think uh, at the top end, um, youth development end as well, it'd be useful to have referees go on coaching courses. Um, you know, like like we do the Kerber coaching courses. We have a diploma one, diploma two. Um, I think it's useful for a referee to go and understand how the game's taught and, and what the, the teacher tells the pupil and, 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 and that perspective. But if they've been an ex-player too, is, is they bring their perspective of the game. So it'd be great to recruit more ex-players. Um, I think in the, in the pro game, um, certainly since uh, the, the 2010 EPPP, everything's got better. So um, what can be improved, um, Maybe, um, you know, the mental side of the game, psychologists, because I know from, um, you know, ex uh, experience from clubs that I've been uh, sort of had longer relationships with, at Arsenal with Liam Brady and, and, and at Newcastle with Joe Joyce in England, 
Um, it would help to have psychologists because a lot of the players have off-field issues and they're not non-football issues. And most many clubs do have that. But a lot of times, academy manager gets um, has to deal with these off-field issues, and then that sort of that's very difficult for them because they have so many compliance uh, issues. They've got you know their staff, and then this issue, which is a very difficult issue, because the boys are. Um, when they go outside the academy, they're with their parents. And if it's a dis dysfunctional family, or uh, it's very difficult for the academy manager then to deal with that. So I think specialists, maybe psychologists. Um, and I suppose there's an interesting thing coming up, Ryan. Um, so Bayern Munich are going to experiment. Uh, um, now, whether they're going to do this, but, but they've said they're going to do this. Um, so in three years, they're going to phase out under 12s from Bayern and they're going to pick three partner clubs within, uh, I think, 45 minutes or an hour away from the Bayern Munich training ground, which is just outside Munich. And these are going to be their partner clubs. So the, the boys are going to stay from up to 12. But then they'll service those clubs. Um, you know, sometimes they'll bring the boys in, but the, basically the boys will stay there, you know, play with their friends and, and et cetera until they're 12. Uh, now, whether other clubs follow this, um, I, I'd like to see if it works, because in some ways it makes sense to me that because of the conversion rate into the pro game, it, I mean, it's so, in your book, you, you describe it very well, but less than 1% of nine-year-olds. So there's, I'm, I'm thinking, and I don't have an answer, how do you improve, improve these conversion rates at pro clubs? Um, because if you've got the 1%, you've got 99% dissatisfied or not fulfilling what they thought they'd fulfill and all, all the problems that come with that. Um, so I, I, I'm really interested to see if the buy-in experiment, or let me call it that, and let's see if they do it, to phase out under 12s um, and then, but, but service them. So they're going to service these clubs, their partner mm -hmm. clubs. And um, in a way, in, in Curva, that's one of the things in our business that we've we do all over the world is we, we have this, this thing called a partner club. So we partner with clubs, whether they're grassroots or pro clubs, and we help in session planning. We devise our sessions. We, we devise some of the coaches' education. Um, and um, th that also, I think, is a useful way of, of, of giving support to clubs, especially grassroots clubs, because they're all volunteers, et cetera. And so for example, you can imagine if you turn up on a Monday and you've been working all day and what am I going to do this Monday? So Curva steps in and says, look, you do, this is your session plan for this Monday. That's, that's great. That's a fascinating insight. And, and, and that is a really interesting um, development over there with buying. It's, it's going to be worth keeping an eye on because I think it's a yeah. question that a lot of clubs are asking themselves. A lot of people from outside of the game are wondering about. So yeah, it's going to be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Lastly, Alf, um, for any of our listeners who would like to learn more about you or about Curva, is there anywhere you'd like to direct them? Yes, um, so uh, the tag is at CurvaAlf, so it's my ALF after Curva, and also at Curva Coaching. So those two tags will send them to sites and um, uh, Twitter and social media and et cetera. So if they want to know more, um, it'll be our pleasure to help. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Brilliant. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care, buddy. That was Alf Kalustian, and that was also the very final episode of the Dream Factory podcast. 
thank you to everybody who's tuned in and enjoyed the show on its limited run and um, please do also consider picking up a copy of my book The Dream Factory Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies if you haven't already it's available in all the usual places 